Not everybody who has sought solitude has shared Thoreau's thirst for transcendence. There have been people who had to retreat into isolation for their safety as a way to survive. In late August of 1911, a young worker was walking through a slaughterhouse in Oroville, California, when he came across a startling sight. It was a man he did not know. The man was emaciated and despondent. He was searching for food. There was no sense that he was turning himself in or acquiescing in any way. This is Jace Weaver. He's the director of the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. Weaver says the starving man was the last known survivor of a tribe called the Yahi. After he was found in the slaughterhouse, the man was put under the supervision of an anthropologist named Alfred Krober. Krober decided to give the indigenous man a name. Ishi just means man in the Yana language because under the protocol of the Yana, a person can't give his name until another Yahi introduces him and there was no one left to introduce him. So Krober just named him Man. There was no one left to introduce Ishi because the rest of his family and his tribe had died, disappeared, or been killed. In 1865, the Yahi were attacked by whites in the Three Knolls Massacre. They killed more than half the tribe. 33 of the Yahi survived, but they continued to be attacked by ranchers and hunters. Therefore, Ishii and his family decided to go into hiding and evade white people as much as possible. They stayed in the solitude for more than 40 years, but despite their efforts, grief still found Ishii and his family. He had a terrifying encounter when some engineers, surveyors, were coming through, and he and his sister panicked and ran in opposite directions, and he never saw his sister again. By 1911, Ishii was about 50 years old and alone. When he's found searching for food, Ishii's hair was still burned short. This was an act of mourning for the Yahi. Ishii's mother had recently died. She was the last of his companions. Now, without speaking a word of English, Ishii is thrust into Western society and is taken to live at the Museum of Anthropology in San Francisco. It was reported in the newspapers when Krober returned with him and the public flocked to the museum. And Ishii hated crowds, and he hated to be touched, and he learned to shake hands politely, and he would readily put out his hand if someone stuck theirs out, but he never initiated handshakes. He would literally, uh, in the face of a faceless crowd, panic, have a panic attack. and He would uh, go rigid, he would lose speech. And yet, Krober did turn down all more exploitative offers to put him on the vaudeville circuit. He saw himself as a protector of Ishii. What kind of language did the press use to describe Ishii? The last wild Indian. Whatever's meant by last and whatever's meant by wild, that wasn't Ishii, although he was the last Yahi. This label of the last wild Indian was a large part of his appeal and fascination with the public. During this period, anthropologists, as well as all Americans, thought that Indians were vanishing. And so here was their last chance to see an Indian as he was. An opportunity to see Ishii 
the uncontaminated aborigin recently discovered near Oroville and believed to be the last wild Indian in the country will be given to the public Sunday afternoon at the Museum of Anthropology. Curator A.L. Krober of the museum has arranged to have Ishii on exhibition from 1 o'clock until 4. Between those hours, Ishii will allow the people of the city to inspect him weaving a fishnet, chipping arrow points, or engaged in some other native occupation. San Francisco Chronicle, October 14th, 1911. And so Krober and a colleague decide they want to see where Ishii had lived, and they go on a camping trip. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Krober and Saxton Pope persuaded Ishii over Ishii's own objections to accompany them on a camping trip back to his homelands. Theodora Krober, who wrote the book Ishii, and she says he was happy on the trip, but all of her evidence belies that. He was distracted. He was fidgety. Remember, it was where his last relatives had died. It was for him the land of the dead. And when Krober suggests that they have to get back to the city, Ishii, who hated horseback riding, immediately packed up the base camp and got on the horse and was ready to go. In fact, Krober and Pope hated to go back to civilization, quote-unquote. They wanted to stay longer, even though Ishii was clearly agitated. Weaver says this camping trip shows how Ishii was caught between two worlds of torment. At the museum, he's seen as a spectacle and living exhibit. Meanwhile, back in his homeland, he's met with nothing but the memory of death and despair. Nevertheless, Ishii endured life at the museum, but only for five years. He died of tuberculosis in 1916. Krober is away at the time, and he wires Saxton Pope, who was a physician. He did not want an autopsy. Ishii had stumbled one day in on Pope in the dissection room and saw these bodies in various stages of dissection and was horrified and appalled. And so Krober, again trying to be protective, wires Pope and says, an autopsy would not do anything other than be macabre. If it's said that it's the interest of science, tell them I say science can go to hell. But arrived too late, and Pope had already performed the autopsy. And there's continuing controversy about this, right? About the, the consequences of that autopsy? Yes. Ishii's brain was separated from his body and was sent to an anthropologist at the Smithsonian in Washington. And although Ishii's body was buried, his brain was not with it. And it wasn't until the 1990s that it was found, the Smithsonian saying it was in a curatorial facility in Silver Spring, Maryland, and they didn't know anybody had been looking for it. And then there's a, a reburial in 2000, is my understanding? Correct. Reuniting his brain with his ashes. Uh, I assume that the brain was cremated as well. Not surprisingly, and not without cause, white Americans feel guilty for the enormous death and destruction they unleashed among the indigenous people. Do you think there's a kind of compensation that people are searching for when they go to a museum to see Ishii? Yes, I think that's, that's right. And you're probably familiar with what's called Chief Seattle's speech. Now tell me about that. Chief Seattle was a chief in the Puget Sound area. And in 1855, 
he signed a treaty agreeing to leave where Seattle now is uh, and go to a reservation on another part of the Sound. And he made a speech that day. In the early 1970s, a version of that speech became wildly popular because it talked about we're all related, interconnected, there's a web of existence. But that version bore no resemblance to the speech that was recorded that day, taken down that day. It was made up for an environmental documentary by a screenwriter. The end of the 73 speech is, no one can escape the common destiny. We may be brothers after all, we shall see. The version that was recorded that day, at the end, Chief Seattle says, when your children and your children's children think themselves alone, will be there with them. They will never be alone. The teeming masses of my dead will be there with them. So let them treat Indians justly, for the dead are not altogether powerless. Jace Weaver is the director of the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia.